Oh, let's go to the country for a while. Hey, folks, thank you for tuning in to How's It Growing right here on KZUM Lincoln. Hi, I'm Bob Henriksen with the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum, planting Nebraska each and every day. Gorgeous Wednesday out there, the last Wednesday of September. My, oh, my, how time flies when you're having fun. We're staring at October, people. It's looking at us in the face. Thank you for joining me today. I have a great guest on the program today. I have Sarah Browning. She's an extension educator with UNL, Lancaster County, and Horticulture. And Sarah, are you on the line? Can you hear me now? I am here, Bob. Yay. Well, thanks for calling in, Sarah. You're welcome. My pleasure. It's always good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. I saw the, the, the line ring, and I'm like, oh, man, I forgot to tell you, you know, I got my opening song, blah, blah, blah. Right. But hey, anyway. You, no problem. I got to listen to the opening song. Right. It's night. kind of a kind of a fun song, I thought. You know, uh, the fellow's name is Martin Sexton, and he has a song called Going to the Country. And I think, you know, this time of year... Don't we all just kind of hope for that, right? <laughs> you bet. It's beautiful weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. We we deserve it. And, uh, man, it's, uh, you know, yeah, we were a little cool last week. We had some cool days. But, uh, man, no, nothing looks, well, it still looks kind of summer-like as we look ahead to the forecast, a high of 85 on Saturday. Wow. Mm-hmm. What a trip. So here we go. And, of course, no rain in the forecast that I saw either, uh, which right. is really a bummer. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I always tell people, it could be worse. We could be in, uh, you know, staring at a 10-inch deficit. Do you happen to know, Sarah, if, where we're at in the city of Lincoln for rainfall total for the year? I certainly don't know. Uh, I, I haven't checked it lately, Bob. I could check that out here real quick while we're on the show. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, Type that in. Our, yeah, yeah, let me check it real quick and see where we're at for rain. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm going to predict uh, last time, oh, it's been a while, but I'm going to predict it's going to be around five inches below normal now because I think it was around two to three inches, something like that, last time I looked, which is probably several weeks ago. And uh, we haven't gotten a whole lot of moisture <laughs> in seven weeks. And anyway, yeah, it's just uh, we're all crossing our fingers. We get some good moisture before, you know, old man winter sets in and the soil freezes. And uh, then we're staring at another dry open winter, perhaps. Who knows? Um, so mm-hmm. it's just concerning, that's for sure. So, Sarah... Um, Glad to have you on the program today. Again, folks, Sarah is an extension educator. You can find Sarah on Backyard Farmer when Backyard Farmer airs. She's one of the panelists there, not on every week, but certainly uh, on the horticulture side of things on Backyard Farmer. And, of course, you can always contact Sarah at Lancaster County Extension. And their number there is 441-7180. And, well, heck, you can just give Sarah a shout-out and say, I heard you on that show. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, well, again, glad to have you. We go way back. I was looking at your history here, Sarah, since 1998. That's how long you've been with Nebraska Extension. And I know you, you right. basically started there in Dodge County because that's when I got to know you because you'd have me come and give, oh, some, I think it was called a Pro Hort Series or whatever you called your, your series where you'd have people right. come and educate your master gardener trainees and we had a program series that um 
was originated by um, another educator in Washington County, and we called it Creating a Horticulture Paradise. Nice, nice. And, yeah, you were one of our frequent speakers. Yeah, and I'm trying to think. Oh, I'm, I had it confused with Burt County. Uh, Blair, what was the name of that fella again? The ex- uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think dang, of it, too, right now. It's on the tip of my tongue. But, yeah, um, honestly, once he left that position and retired, uh, uh, that kind of that program kind of died with it, you know, and right. uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, yeah, I always enjoyed going to Fremont, uh, you know, kind of my old stomping grounds growing up in Little Dodge, Nebraska, not far from Fremont, uh, but certainly a part of Dodge County, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But right. uh, anyway, well, glad to have you on the show. Did you did you find that, Sarah, yet? Uh, um, I'm still looking for it. So the, the um, we had uh, 26.8 inches last year in 21. Mm. I'm trying to figure out what our total precipitation so far has been this year. Um, so the normal annual for uh, for Link, the Lincoln area is 29.34. So we were down, um, what would that be, about about three inches last year, somewhere in that range. Um, let me keep looking. Um, Ending the year, you're saying. So as, as, of, uh, as 2022 started, that's where we ended the year, huh, at three inches right. below? Right. We, we ended the year about three inches down in mm-hmm. rain mm-hmm. last year. And um, let me see if I can figure out where I can find this year's uh, rain so far. Hang on. You know, and I'll just chat while you're doing that. But, you know, as we went through the winter, everybody's recalls, it was, I think, like one of the driest winters on record, uh, open snow and whatnot. And, uh, you know, so we went into the new year three inches down. Then we had a very dry winter. Everybody's like, oh, no, no. Well, thankfully, we did get some spring moisture enough to, I think, bring us back up to average. And then, of course... Well, July rolled around and August rolled around and September now has rolled around where we have not had much of anything. So thank goodness we did get some spring rains. There would be some serious stuff right now. And, you know, our hearts go out to Florida right now. Boy, they they wish they had a better day. Um, okay. You know, certainly oh, the, they're the, getting the, hammered. Yeah, the yeah. Tampa, Tampa area. I saw before I came into work this morning, I, you know, went online to see where it was. And, uh, boy, that's a pretty defined eye Oh, what is it between uh, Tampa and I'm trying to think of this, the nearest city um, just south of there. It's brain freeze. But anyway, yeah. Fort, uh, I know Fort Myers. That's it. That's right it. Right in the path. Yes. That's that's what I was trying to think of is Fort Myers. And uh, yeah. And by now, it's probably certainly uh, breathing its, its, its wrath on Tampa. So, wow. What right. a trip. And I also heard like Tampa's like three feet above sea level. And the storm surge was supposed to be 10 to 15 feet. So, yeah, it's not going to be good. Oh, anyway, um, so... Well, sir- I, just, I just did yeah. some quick calculations here, Bob. And so, yeah, ended we ended the year in 21 at 26.86 inches of rain. And um, I don't know, I'm questioning my math here, <laughs> but I just added up all the precipitation so far for this year. And, and if I did my addition correctly, we're at 17.44. Mm. So that's, not good. I might have to do my additions here again, make sure I didn't make a mistake. <laughs> but now, of course, that's 70.44. We still have, we could still make that up by the end of the year, of course, got, uh, crossing we, our fingers. Months, yeah, yeah, we got three, three months. Three months that are still missing. Yeah, mm-hmm. three months that are still missing. We just hope by uh, December 31st, we're not looking at still at 17 inches of moisture because then we are, but then we are in some serious hurt. Well, anyway, we already are, people. Well, which brings me to things we could talk about today, Sarah, 
um, one of the things that uh, we often advocate at the statewide arboretum is fall planting, and uh, especially of trees and shrubs. But, you know, I think nobody really gets much in the mood for fall planting when it's been this dry. Um, but we still can, correct? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we soil temperatures won't drop, you know, below 40 degrees, which is the point at which root growth kind of ceases and stops for, gosh, at least six, eight weeks yet. So we still have a good period of time for uh, for things to go in the ground and for root growth to happen so those plants can become established a little bit. So there's still time to, to get out there and do that planting. Yeah, and people usually ask me, like, well, how late can I plant? Well, of course, it kind of depends on the year, right? But mm -hmm. do you have, like, a specific, you know, considering averages, a specific, like, cutoff to say, well, I, I generally wouldn't plant... Uh, and we're talking from a container or bald and burlap, folks, uh, a tree or a shrub after such and such date. Would Do you have kind of a, your, your threshold, if you will? You know, I would probably say end of October. Mm -hmm. um, so I would consider that to be the, the cutoff date. Um, you certainly, the ground isn't frozen after that. I mean, the last several years, the ground hasn't actually frozen until sometime in January. Right. So you can still dig and work the soil. But if if the soil temperature has dropped so low that there's really not going to be any root development occurring, then you're and, and you, you still want to plant, you're going to have to take very careful care of those plants to make sure that they don't dry out over the winter, that they don't frost heave and get pushed up out of the ground and uh, prone. And then and then the root ball once it's once it has been affected by frost heaving, that root ball dries out even more quickly and you have even more of a chance of winter, uh, winter desiccation in that root ball. Mm. So, yeah, I would consider, you know, the end of October to be the, the true cutoff. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And, and then that's different than, say, I was transplanting a tree or a shrub, right? That's, uh, that maybe tends to be a little later, like, say... Uh, say I want to move a shrub or I have a, a, a volunteer tree that I want to move, can I do that today? You could certainly do that today, yeah. Um, because, again, we still have several weeks of, of good soil temperatures for root growth and for that plant to become established. I, I would probably um, lump those two things together, Bob, as far as when to plant and when to stop transplanting at about that same time frame okay. um, as at the end of October. So that because both plants in either situation still need root development to at least have a little bit of establishment before we move into the winter months. But shouldn't it be wise to wait until that plant that I'm transplanting, say it's a little tree seedling and some squirrel planted it and I want to replant my oak. Should I, should I wait until those leaves, like until it's dormant, till the leaves drop? Is that a better thing? Because if I move it in full leaf, won't that hurt the plant? Um, it, it can, especially if the, the plant gets too dry because, you know, you're even a little tree seedling, as you dig it up, you're going to cut some roots off. And mm -hmm. so that's going to reduce the plant's ability to pull up water well. So if it still has leaves it's trying to support um, and you're not doing much, if any, watering, then there's the potential for, you know, um, uh, for, for just desiccation, you know, mm -hmm. for, for dry conditions to affect that seedling. If you do the transplanting after the plant has dropped its leaves, then, of course, it's using less water because it's not transpiring water from those leaves mm -hmm. um, the way that it would anymore. So the, the total water usage is lower. And so the, the chances of survival of that, that little seedling without leaves could be better.
Okay. Especially if, you know, you're you're a little limited on how much watering you can do. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Sarah, you know, switching gears to vegetable gardening, you know, fall gardening always, it comes and then I'm like, darn it, I didn't get that done, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Right. And uh, this year, oh gosh, it's been, what, uh, tomorrow's Thursday, I think it'd be three, two weeks ago that I actually sowed arugula seed and lettuce, uh, and I knew I was a little late, And but shoot, uh, I think both arugula and the lettuce germinated within three days, um, couldn't believe it, and uh, the arugula is already up to probably a push in two inches high, so I think I'll get a harvest off of that yet. And uh, oh, the lettuce is probably inch and a half, something like that. Um, but, you know, with this warm weather, I wasn't anticipating that, you know, 85 degrees on my little baby lettuce plants going, come on, man. You know, I wanted it to be highs in the 60s. But, uh, but basically what I'm getting at is for fall gardening uh, right now here at the end of September, probably too late to sow any seed yet, correct? Yeah, even the really short, um, mm-hmm. the short turnaround things. Um, it's it's getting the soil is getting colder, and so it takes that seed longer to germinate, and then to get uh, you know some good growth on it, so that you can actually harvest it. And then doing the harvesting itself, you really don't have much time now right, for right. for those types of things, unless you have some kind of a special setup, you know, like a um, a low tunnel or a um, a hotbed that you've created that provides some some cold protect some cold protection and some additional uh warm temperatures um i know there are um there are some growers out there who are you know just ve- very diligent gardeners who who have production all winter long but they have a very special setup to provide that temperature protection and some extra heat to help keep those plants growing. Gotcha, gotcha. So for the average home gardener, yeah, it's, it's going to be too late now. Yeah, so you have something called a low tunnel or something called a high tunnel, and just the difference is the high tunnel, you can kind of, you know, maybe have to duck your head, but you can walk in there, right, versus right. A, a low right. tunnel. I've never honestly made a little low tunnel before, and every year I think I, sh- I should. Have you ever done anything like that, or do you garden with a low tunnel at all, sir? I, I have not at my home. I have, I have not ever done any low t- low tunnel production um but i know some some gardeners are really into it and even creating a little um uh, hotbed or a cold frame you know you could put um some of the really cold temperature crops like um lettuce you know just leaf lettuce or uh, broccoli or cabbage or you know some of those cold crops in a cold frame and you know you could get them continuing to grow over them over the winter so we used to have a great publication through the University of Nebraska on how to build a cold frame or a hotbed. And, um, you know, one really simple way to do it would, was just to have straw bales and create a square with straw bales and mm. then put old glass pane windows on top of the straw bales, mm-hmm. you know, to um, provide the light penetration that you need for plant growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Uh, to, to, to hold in the warmth um, or to moderate the temperature inside of the straw bales. So, um, and, and other in other situations, you can actually um, dig down in the soil and create a planting bed inside of a wooden cold frame structure. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different ways that you can build these things. But if you're really, really intent on doing some winter production, um, 
that would be a fun project to try in a home garden or in a home landscape. No doubt. I'm envisioning like reinforcing wire, you know, cutting it in a length and making a hoop out of it and then putting some good, strong, clear plastic over that and basically fastening it so you can pick the thing up and set it back down again, right? Because you still have to water those lettuce plants and if it's got plastic covering it or a day maybe... 80 degrees in mid-October, which probably is going to be likely. You can kind of cook those plants, right? So right, you can, get them too hot. Yeah, so you can basically knead it portable or knead it, mm-hmm. you know, so you can take it off in the morning before you go to work and then put it on if, at night if it's supposed to be, you know, I think tonight's supposed to be low 40s, I think they said. So a little bit chilly this morning, too. It was. <laughs> I think everybody had to grab a jacket this morning. Yeah, the so. Nice, the nice th- technique about using the old window panes is that... Um, if you have them on a hinge structure, a, a, a permanent wooden hinge stru- structure, you can prop them open. Mm-hmm. So you get a warm day and you can prop them open so that you get some good air movement and you, you keep your plants uh, cool at the right temperature. And then, of course, you can shut it at night so that they get the, the uh, cold protection that they need. So it could be opened and closed as much as you need on demand to, to um, do that manual uh, manipulation of the temperature inside. Cool, cool. Okay, so, um, all right, that kind of covers the the, vet, the vegetable part question I had for you for now. And then uh, what about turf grass seed? Is it is it like, it's late September, it's too late if we wanted to do a fall sowing of turf grass seed, correct? Yeah, especially if you're planting tall fescue uh, as your turf grass, because tall fescue does take longer for those seedlings to develop winter hardiness. And if, mm. you, if you do a late planting, the chances are, well, you run the risk, I should say, of of having early cold temperatures or early uh, extra cold freezing nights and then having some of those seedlings not survive. Mm. So if you're going to put you know, a lot of effort into doing a seeding, the ideal time for a fall seeding is August 15th to September 15th. Mm-hmm. So that's the, re- the really the best time frame. You have a little bit more wiggle room for planting Kentucky bluegrass because those seedlings um, develop cold hardiness a little bit bigger, a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. But even so, it would be better at this point now um, to just wait and do a dormant seeding, which we would we would probably start sometime in November. Um, and the whole purpose of a dormant seeding is you're going to do all the soil preparation and everything um, now in the fall when temperature or when um, it's nice outside and but it's still fairly dry, so that working the soil is is uh, pretty easy. Then you're going to put the seed down with no expectation that it's actually going to germinate this year. The seed is just going to sit there all winter long until we get to about mid-April when soil temperatures are right for germination to start occurring, and and it'll happen at that time. But you do all of the preparation and the seeding and everything itself um, ahead of time and get it done in the fall when it's often drier and it's easier to, to do that soil work. Gotcha. So would you say then that the dormant seeding um, really, no, it has no advantage over a August 15 to September 15 fall sowing, correct? It's just if, well, we ran out of time, uh, we, we've got this bare patch that needs to be, you know, covered. And uh, so let's sow it in November and uh, with the intent that it's going to germinate in the spring and become a carpet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we because we may not be able to work the soil in the spring, right? And we have a... Right. We have our grand grand opening, right, in April. So there's really no advantage unless you ran out of time, right? Right. I mean, ideally, 
the very best time of year to do your seeding is in that fall time frame from August 15th to September 15th. Yeah. But if you couldn't get it done within that, that time period, then the dormant seeding is the next best option. Because like you say, Bob, oftentimes, you know, we're starting to get our spring rains in April mm-hmm. and it, that may keep you from doing the soil preparation and getting everything, um, uh, you know, ready to go. And so that may delay you. So if you can just do all the, the prep and the seeding now, then it's it's ready to go in spring as soon as soil temperatures are right. Um, and we oftentimes, well, we do have more weed pressure in the spring. Mm-hmm. You're going to have, and it doesn't matter whether you're doing a dormant seeding or a, uh, a seeding that's actually applied in spring. You're still going to have to deal with the weed issues that we typically have in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least with the dormant seeding, you've got all of the work done and out of the way, and your seeds are ready to go when soil temperatures are correct. That's cool, and I must admit, I've never done it before to see, like, wow, this worked great. So you have mm-hmm. seen, have w- observed others doing whatever yourself with, with great success, like meaning uh, good germination, a nice stand. It's I don't have a bunch of, you know, thin a thin stand or, you know, bare areas. I imagine just like any seeding, it's important the prep up front is critical. Uh, to get, it really is. Yeah. You've got to get that good seed soil contact, you know, so that the, the seedlings will, will germinate and do well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with any seeding, um, one of the best techniques to prepare is aeration. So if you don't have to do any regrading of the ground, there's no reason that you would have to scrape all the existing grass off and go back to bare soil, especially if you've got 50% or more good grass, you know, that you want to to save. If you just need to thicken up some areas or have a few bare spots, then just do an overseeding and aeration helps to open up that soil surface so that when you put the seeds down, they have a nice bare soil surface that they can um, they can land on and it helps keep them moist and helps helps them germinate well. Sometimes people will ask the question, well, if, if I aerate and I've got those holes in the ground and I have seeds that fall in the holes, well, won't those seeds die if they're down in the holes? And no, they really won't. I mean, they'll, they'll germinate and they'll they'll grow and they'll they'll do just fine so you don't have to worry about you know the holes causing problems with your seeding yeah that's well that was a definitely a great question and one we all kind of wondered right i mean it's like well aren't they kind of going to fall into the abyss and uh, mm-hmm. you know not be able to get get covered and whatnot yeah that that's good stuff and mm-hmm. yeah and so i've done some fall sowing before i've done it where it was borderline too late probably was too late and i did get a little damage on it um you know over the winter but all in all it was a pretty decent stand and i don't know i you'd said that sir i think earlier but I I just want to ask, you know, fall sowing of turf grass versus spring, probably, you know, like you said, there's weed pressure in the spring. Um, yeah, you get good moisture, but I've just found fall sowing of turf grass is just the way to go. Would you agree? I, I do agree. It, it, it's, it's, it's much better because we do have less weed pressure in the fall. And when you think about it, the New grass seedlings have a lot more time to become established and to, to grow their roots before they have to go through the hot weather of July, August, and September mm-hmm. again. So if you do your seeding in, um, you know, uh, mid-August, mid-September, they've got they've got all the rest of September, October, November. Um, then root growth would probably begin again in March, March, mm-hmm. April, May to grow. So they've got like six months 
uh, for those roots to grow before they have to really deal with very hot temperatures again. Boom. That sounds like the best advantage to me. That's for yeah. sure. Good stuff. Okay. Very good. All right. So, and speaking of false sowing, Sarah, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I've heard this before and well, I've done it quite by accident. Um, I remember, you know, growing some melons. I didn't get hardly any fruit to set on my melons. I had a whole lot of melon. I mean, we're talking, you know, you know how aggressive those are, folks. If you've ever mm-hmm. planted a melon, they'll take over your world. Well, I had a whole lot of melon leaves, but not a whole lot of melons per se. And I don't know, was it a, a pollination issue? Uh, maybe you'll you'll address that. But mm-hmm. I remember one kind of got hidden in the foliage it, it didn't get harvested it rotted out there and and oh, uh, and then the following spring when i'm doing a better job of cleaning things up out there i see a little baby watermelon coming up <laughs> and so i'm like oh you're a volunteer maybe i should just leave it and see what happens so i did and man that one was really productive i had g- great melons and now there was no other melons around for this selection that I had or whatever to cross with so I didn't have to worry about it not coming true to seed I didn't really care I was like whatever watermelon I get it is what it is this happened to be an orange fleshed one um gosh I can't even remember the variety but oh man when that baby's ripe is like candy of course what melon isn't but wonderful yeah yeah so is there any because I remember it's like an, an, an old farmer's almanac type tale like full sow your watermelon seed your muskmelon seed um your squash seed in the fall um, and then they, they know when to germinate in the spring rather than you maybe planting them too early or planting them too late, you know, the, the guessing game that you have with sowing your, your seeds in the spring, which I realize, folks, is not much of a guessing game, but still, is there any truth to that, uh, false sowing your melons and squashes? That's an interesting um, idea. and I've never run into that, Bob, about doing a false sowing of melons. Um, I, I assume that, you know, just like the turf we were just talking about, as soon as soil temperatures are have reached the right level, and most of our melons do like pretty warm soil for mm-hmm. germination, that they would get started and, and get going. So that's a very interesting theory. Yeah, and I, and I remember reading about it, and it was like, well, you know, the, the so-called, quote, quote, old-timers would do it, like, near the compost pile, or they maybe they had a compost pile that was half broken down, mm-hmm. still very organic and whatnot. They just plunked their seeds down into that, and uh, away she'd go next year, feeding off that, that decaying matter, or maybe you have some straw that you had in the garden, and it's kind of broken down big time, um, you know, piling that up, and you know, sowing the, obviously sowing the seed in the, in the soil underneath there, but basically that plant will come up through that mulch in the spring and away you go. And of right. course, back in the day, they used to have uh, burn barrels. Remember that? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. We're of the age we remember burn barrels people, but anyway, there, it seems to me there was a vegetable they always recommended planting near that burn barrel as long as you weren't burning anything toxic. Was that cucumbers or something? Do you know? Up the no, top? that's another one that yeah. I don't think I've ever heard before. I'm just full of all these old-timer <laughs> farmer's almanac things today. All right, well, anyway, um, I just thought I'd mention that, and, and maybe some listeners out there have done that too. And a lot of times when you get your volunteer squash, your melons or whatever, it's quite by accident, right? You didn't, right. didn't plan right. on it. It's just all of a sudden there. But right. I'm just telling you people, if it happens to you, let it grow. Let yeah. it do its thing, and you might be pleasantly surprised. Well, Sarah, you know, I'm looking at the clock here. Okay. Oh, sorry to cut you off, but I do have to take a break, and I'm going to leave you on the line, and we've got some messages for, from KZUM, and I'll keep you on the line, and when we come back, we'll chat some more. 
Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. All right, that is Sarah Browning. She's an extension educator with UNL and Lancaster County. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me today. Hey, folks, I want to remind you and thank everyone who has made a donation to KZUM during our fall fund drive. Yay! As of 4 p.m. yesterday, we are only $1,672 short. Uh, you know, you still have a chance to donate. If you haven't had a chance to donate yet, you can go to kzum.org right now. And our super deluxe thank you gifts are still available. Folks, every dollar we raise brings in more grant dollars from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Every dollar counts. And uh, you can help us breach our goal. And, uh, well, during How's It Growing? Go to kzum.org. Pledge your support. Support this wonderful radio station we like to call KZUM. And, uh, yeah, we will be here for you. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back right after these brief messages. Keep it right here. This is KZUM. Oh, that's a little steel wheels for you to bring you to the next part of How's It Growing? Every Wednesday, 11 till noon, right here on KZUM, Lincoln and Sarah Browning, Extension Educator with Lancaster County Horticulture. Joining me today, Sarah, thanks again for your time. And I don't know if you heard that little segue music there from Steel Wheels. Uh, we were fortunate enough to go down to a, uh, well, a little music event they like to call Walnut Valley Festival down in Little Winfield, Kansas, uh, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, man, a 50-year festival that's all string music and kind of bluegrass and folk and well, I guess you could call it gospel and all sorts of good stuff. It was a lot of fun. A whole lot of people show up to that big event. Have you ever heard of it? I have not, and I, I've never been to it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of folks we uh, we talk about is, oh, I never heard of that. And uh, boy, it was a bigger event than I thought it was. And, uh, you know, 50-year anniversary, it was quite the celebration. I think they have like, oh gosh, if I can upwards of seven different stages uh, around wow. that joint. It's like, uh, yeah, so if you like music, people, uh, mark mid-September for going to Winfield and mm -hmm. leave everything else behind. <laughs> well, anyway, Sarah, uh, thanks again. Now, there's a caller that tried to call in during the break there. Caller, do call back. I know I, you were on hold and probably had better things to do in life but uh yeah if you have a question comment uh, 474-5086 i can get you on the line with sarah here because i know sarah when you're live in the studio we will do that someday i, I know we will uh, <laughs> we would probably get what a dozen calls while you were in so sure. i think uh covid kind of taught people that when i was here solo all the time and doing radio interviews well before we got these new phones i couldn't have two people on the line at the same time so now i can Nice. So four seven four five zero eight six, folks, if you want to get in on the conversation with Sarah and I, we'd love to have you. Uh, okay. So, Sarah, um, all right, we had a hot, dry summer. Uh, rinse and repeat, right? When don't we have a hot, dry summer? But, you know, um, I imagine, you know, there with Lancaster County Extension, you get a lot of calls. What would you say... Um, really kind of uh, was like the, the number one or two or three different, um, I don't want to say problems, but, you know, pest problems and things that people had this year that, uh, you know, uh, we can kind of either address. I know Japanese beetles are kind of, is that kind of one of them that you're getting more and more calls every year? Yeah, Japanese beetles just really give people fits during the, you know, what, eight weeks or so when they're present from mm -hmm. about, you know, early part of June until... Um, almost mid-August, you know, they're they're out there munching on things. They mm -hmm. yeah, they give people a lot of problems. 
Um, and it's difficult, you know. Um, they, you know, it, it, what, when I first came to the Lincoln office, Bob, it, it's interesting that Japanese beetles were still pretty spotty within within Lincoln. There were some some parts of Lincoln that had had them, and others that hadn't seen them yet. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, here ten years later. Um, they're pretty much throughout all of Lincoln, and it, it seems like if, if you're a gardener, you're probably aware of this yeah. this painful little insect. Um, so the question that we get, you know, in the later part of the summer, is well, I had a bad Japanese beetle problem this year, and I want to get ahead of it for next year. So can I treat the soil? Can I kill the larva in the soil, and will that help prevent my problems next year? Well. The products that we use for um, lawns to control white grubs uh, uh, will also kill Japanese beetle larvae um, because Japanese beetle larvae are another type of white grub, just like the normal mass chafer that we have problems with or that some folks have problems with every year. So using those insecticides, you know, will kill the Japanese beetle immatures. But the problem is that the adults are very good flyers. So even if you kill all the larvae in your soil, it's probably not going to have much of an impact on the number of beetles you have because if you have plants in your landscapes that they really love, like roses or grapes or um, hibiscus or a linden tree or birch tree, Mm -hmm. those beetles are going to fly to your tree because those are a preferred food source for Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't a great preventative control, you know, to help you get ahead of these guys. And that's that's definitely a problem. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, okay, Japanese beetles um, were never here. They're here now, and they're obviously a pretty adaptable critter. Um, I, I have a grapevine at home on an arbor, and not last this summer, but the summer before. No, two summers ago. Okay, so it would have been the COVID year of 2020. Here came the Japanese beetles, and uh, so I learned. Yes, they like grapes. Um, I was out there nightly. Uh, I just kept a stepladder there, and every night when I'd get home from work, I'd go up with my soapy bucket of water and try to, you know, kind of... Um, Do the hand picking? Yeah, use, not necessarily pick them because I learned they're smart. You know, I would just kind of tap the leaf really hard, so I, right. I kind of tapped them into the soapy water. Well, those little boogers became smart, right? I'd get up on there, and I swear the first little... little They were always mating, right? There's like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so you can get two two for one or sometimes three or four because they, they like to cluster on the leaves, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after about the third or fourth time doing that, all of a sudden they're all like, oh, man, exit stage left, he's back, you know? So they'd all go flying off and I'm like, dang, you guys are smart. So I'd really have to just kind of just very gently do it so the others wouldn't catch on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I think it did help a little bit. And, you know, I reduced their numbers a little and better than saying in a trap, right? You're, you know, that's right. that's still extensions re- recommendation. Do not get a trap, right? Right. And, and the reason is because those traps are, are they're, the pheromone that they put in the trap to, to attract the beetles is actually very effective, and it will draw lots of beetles to your landscape, mm. more beetles than you would have had without the trap. So it's really better in the long run not to have the trap because mm. you, you'll end up with fewer insects than if you put one up. I think it's some people I've talked to, it just gives them real satisfaction when they catch like a, a gallon of these things. And I'm like, okay, right. whatever makes you feel good. Is there anything you think we can do preventative wise? I was curious about this too, if you knew any or read any research or whatever, 
okay, we can't prevent them from flying to the plants I have in my landscape that are very much a preferred food source. But overall, do they like to, like when they lay their eggs, I'm assuming they lay their little egg that becomes a larvae in the soil. How does that work? Because so, when I think about grubs uh, in lawns, where I typically see grub problems is, uh, you know, maybe compacted, poorly drained soil that's maybe watered too much, overwatered, uh, where, this, where the turf is actually stressed and the root system is kind of shallow uh, versus a lawn that doesn't have uh, a whole lot of irrigation on it, making it kind of a, oh, uh, not, a, not an ideal place for an insect to lay eggs. Is there any truth to that? You know, like just in the management of your landscape where you can kind of, well, fine, I, I'm not going to control but I'm going to make it so my landscape is not a place they want to lay eggs. Yeah, that's a good thought, Bob. Um, so with the, the mass chafer immatures, the, the normal white grub, we see them a lot in um, lawns that have um, a, a very high thatch layer. Um, mm -hmm. lawns, or we, we tend to see them in areas of the lawn that are more hot and sunny rather than in shaded parts of the Interesting. lawn. Interesting, okay. Um, but I haven't really heard of, of any cultural practices like that that would help to minimize um, Japanese beetle grubs in the soil. If they, if they have certain types of soil that they prefer over others, um, that's just not something that I've ever really run across. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious if there's some management things we could do. And because uh, I just remember being helping a friend answer, answer some questions and he didn't have a sprinkler system yet and all of his neighbors did and he was kind of, you know, not necessarily complaining about it, but just his lawn looked like it was going semi-dormant, whereas everybody else's was, you know, lush green. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody else's, he said, had grub problems uh, and he didn't. So that's what made me think, I wonder if there's any truth to that. That's why I had to ask, you know, because when we tend to have automatic sprinkler systems, we tend to set it and forget it. And uh, that's that's not a wise move, uh, right. in my opinion. I think, I think they shouldn't come with a set it and forget it. You have to turn them on manually. Otherwise... Right. No sprinkler system for you. <laughs> right. But, of course, if we turned them on manually, it'd be something like, oh, shoot, I forgot to shut those off, and they've been running for four hours. No, what we're talking about turning on manually is you you know, you know, have it set on a timer, but you don't turn the on switch on until you're ready to water versus, you know, watering three times a week just because. Um, right. Yeah, I think it's a wise move. Use your sprinkler system as a, a safety valve, not as you know, uh, something, because it'll just cause you problems, not just with your turf grass, but lots of other things too in your landscape. But right. yeah, so. But you're right, in a, in a drier soil, there may be less um, survival of the newly hatched larva than mm -hmm. there would be in a lawn that is uh, overwatered or, or, you know, getting getting a good amount of moisture. Yeah. So. Okay, very good. Okay, so another pest I wanted to ask you about was the dreaded squash vine borer. And mm -hmm. uh, every year I know you get lots of questions on Backyard Farmer through extension because it's very frustrating to anybody that, you know, your zucchini's doing great, your, your summer squash and just lots of harvest. And then you go out there one day and your whole plant's wilted down and it's like, what? 
Oh, the dreaded squash vine borer got me again. Right. <laughs> and, and so I've been talking with a friend of mine about, you know, ways to prevent them from doing that. And that brings me back to there's all sorts of, you know, old-timer tales on what to do to prevent them. And I remember talking to Fred Baxendale, and he said he always just overplants, you know. So if he has one zucchini, he'll he'll plant five and then that, that way you know they can't get them all and i'm like well that's great if you have the space but not everybody has the space to plant five zucchini plants right yeah. and is there anything and i've even heard of people putting like vicks vapor rub on the base of your plant uh the stalk of the plant where the vine borer actually bores into it and i'm like okay i'm not sure about that one but basically right you know after you watered it would wash it off and you'd have to reapply it daily and that sounds annoying well i think what i would think about this time of year bob would be um going after the overwintering generations mm. so squash vine borers overwinter in the soil in little cocoons mm. as an immature insect and then they emerge as a, it's actually a day flying moth um that that lays the eggs on the, the vines next year so um I w it's interesting, I was just talking with a colleague of mine, Aaron Nigren, up in uh, the Butler County area. He he pumps, grows pumpkins every year. He grows pumpkins to sell. Okay. And he was giving me a little bit of a rundown on how his production was this year. He said he had very few squash vine borers mm. after he had a very heavy problem with them in, in uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't positive uh, if this was the cause, but he did some tillage in his field um, to to um, uh, work up the soil a little bit in the fall. Mm. And he's thinking that he may have killed off a fair number of the overwintering squash vine borers. So, uh -huh. you know, we we try to encourage people to do minimal tilling in their uh -huh. vegetable garden because we want to maintain soil quality. And if we do tilling all the time, then you can really uh, speed up the breakdown of the organic matter in your soil. But in this case, especially if you have squash vine borer problems in your garden this this year, you might want to do some spading or some tilling of the soil in the areas where you had your uh, your vining cucurbit plants um, just to try to expose some of those overwintering pupa to either predatory insects or birds or just uh, physically destroying them as you work the soil. And that might help to, you know, bring the uh, pressure in your plants down a little bit next year. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you say like if I'm spading, like if I'm digging up chunks of soil and just kind of turning it and leaving that that uh, that turned chunk of soil exposed to the elements, right? That that's right. and we should do that anyway, right? It, with not just with that pest, but other pests. But then what I like to do is I call it chunking the soil. So I'll I'll do those chunks in the fall, and now it's all kind of uneven and big pore spaces between my chunks. And then in the spring, I'll add compost to those open crevices, and it just becomes very easy to work up and create a nice uh, friable soil without having to break out a tiller like you said that's bad for soil structure and plus i can't get a tiller where i'm going anywhere uh, mm -hmm. because i have raised beds there so mm -hmm. really makes working the soil uh, really really easy and and a good thing to do yeah. all right uh, so anyway so sarah okay uh, so you could you could use that technique to try to kill some of the overwintering uh, insects but then uh, next year again bob when when folks have got their plants in the ground there, you know, you mentioned the mentholatum rub, which I've never heard of. Right. <laughs> I figured there you hadn't. Some, there are some other techniques. Yeah. And they're aimed at preventing, at making it more difficult for that adult female to get to the main vine, which mm. is where she likes to lay her eggs. Okay. So that she can't lay her eggs. 
So um, I've heard of people using foil, wrapping that main vine with foil. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard of people using old nylon stockings ah. and just gently wrapping the stem with a nylon stocking. Mm-hmm. And I think the theory there is that it, it feels strange to her. It doesn't feel like the normal egg-laying site that she uses, and so she'll go on and she'll uh-huh. lay eggs somewhere else. Another one is just to use toilet paper rolls and just uh-huh. slit the cardboard, and then you can put that around the stem of the uh, whatever you're growing, a melon, mm-hmm. pumpkin, whatever, and it'll just make it difficult for her to get down there to lay her eggs. So those are a few kind of uh, mechanical ways that you could try to minimize egg laying. Okay. And so, okay, so I got my zucchini. It's growing, and uh, it's up there maybe around two feet tall, looking great. That main stem is finally starting to form. I mean, do, do we know, like, when they typically start laying eggs uh, on a mature uh, plant? Uh, like, like, when should we, like, keep our guard up? Like, immediately? Yeah. Um, it's, no, it's not immediately. It's, it's, it's when the vines start to run. So when the vine itself starts to develop. Um, past a little bushy, you know, transplant. Gotcha. That's when you need to start thinking about protection. So it's still pretty early in the season. Um, But as as soon as the vines start to grow out, that's when you need to provide the protection. I'm glad you said that because it's that main vine, folks, right at the base. And if you look at a young zucchini plant, it's pretty much all those hollow leaf stalks coming off of it, right? When it's a a clump like that. And then Mm -hmm. as it ages, it kind of, it can even kind of, you know, bend over and root on the ground and root along the ground. So Mm -hmm. in other words, you could protect that first four inches or whatever with whatever you're protecting it with then you just got to be diligent as that vine's expanding to keep protecting it right because then all of a sudden three weeks pass your zucchinis are still producing you're amazed that it's still producing and then it's like whoops oops my vine my vine stem has now grown another foot and uh i didn't protect it well now the dreaded vine borer found that and got it too Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and sometimes they they will attack sections of the stem that are farther out on the vine, um, and if that happens, you can um, you can either cut off that section, you know, because you're still they haven't attacked the main crown of the plant. So at that point, you'll just have one vine dying instead of the whole plant dying. You can just cut that vine off and get rid of it. You can slit the vine open, remove the little. Uh, boring grub, the immature stage of the squash vine borer. And some folks will have good luck at planting that section of the stem that they slit open in the ground and, hmm. and having it re-root and then start to grow again. Um, but but they most often the females like that main stem at the very base of the plant as their main egg-laying site. So that's the one that we have to um, put the most effort into controlling or to protecting, I should say. Gotcha. You know, one thing I've done, Sarah, too, I got, you know, I, I like the idea of, ex, you know, tilling or exposing them in, over winter. But, you know, uh, what I did one year, got a little frustrated and just said, you know, I'm not going to grow zucchini uh, this mm-hmm. year. And then I grew it the following year or whatever it may be, yellow squash, patty pan squash, whatever the case may be that the, the vine borers get. And just skipping a year, I think, also helps, don't you? Mm-hmm. Just It does. It's almost like a rotation plan. I mean, you're rotating, you're rotating over years where you're going to produce some vine crops this year, but you're not going to produce them again next year. So you have a break, you know, and you can uh, break the, the reproductive uh, cycle of the squash vine borers. 
Yeah, they, they hatch out of your soil, and I'm like, dude, there's nothing to eat here. I'm right. moving on. Right, and, so go somewhere else. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've done that even with those little stinkers that bother your eggplant, the little flea beetles, uh, annoying little things. But um, that's that's another subject for another day, the little flea beetles. But I found skipping growing eggplant uh, one year and going back the following year, man, I had great-looking plants, hardly any flea beetle pressure on them. Um, but if I did it year after year... Um, the the population would build up and it became like literally, you know, twice a day I would go out in the morning before I'd leave for work and the evening when I got home, if I didn't smush those little guys, because they're kind of dumb, I can just easily smush them, but they, they, they catch on to you too and they, ah, they jump into the soil, right? When you show up, <laughs> here he is, he's going to get you. No, but anyway, uh, yeah, that that's also an issue. But would for the squash vine borer is one thing I thought of, Sarah. Could I do this? Is my as it's starting to vine out, uh, literally covering the crown of that plant? Could I cover it with some loose straw? Some straw will that prevent her from laying her eggs, or even wood chips over that crown? Is or is that a no no? Well, that would be very similar to the other uh, mechanical men, uh, control techniques that we just mentioned: the the foil and the nylons and mm-hmm. the the paper, uh, the cardboard paper tube, it would, yeah, it would just be a physical barrier where she couldn't get to that main stem to lay her eggs. Um, I could even use leaves. Could I just use fall leaves from last year? Um, like, like, like leaves in my compost bin that are kind of broken down a little bit and just cover them with leaves or would she crawl through those leaves to find where, where to deposit the eggs? That's what I'm wondering, Bob. I I can't say that I've ever seen any research on that. So you certainly could try it and see how it works, but I'm thinking if it was something a little heavier that might be harder for her to dig through, um, it might be a little more effective at at preventing her from getting to that vine. Gotcha. So maybe you do an experiment next year. Right. Report back to us and let us know how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. If I had, if I had like the space to do like 12 of them, whatever, right. Mm -hmm. Um, I would do that, but Mm -hmm. well, well, thanks. Those are great tips, Sarah. And I know again, it gets frustrating for you folks out there. In fact, it gets so frustrating where you're like, I'm done growing that stuff and I'm just going to get it from the market. And then that's fine too. (laughs) You need to support your local farmer too. And, and by the way, folks, uh, the uh, Sunday farmers market there in college view only gosh, four weeks left, I believe, uh, through the end of October. And Man, I have to admit, it's been it's been two at least two weeks since we made it to the farmers market. Always something going on on that Sunday, but uh, mm-hmm. encourage you folks to to check it out. Go to the market, support your local farmer. It's been some gorgeous days. Just had other things to do, and I think this Sunday is probably going to be the same way. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. We are out of time here on How's It Growing. I thank you for all your great information as always and keep up the great work at Lancaster County Extension. And Sarah, if people wanted to contact Extension, um, what is that phone number again? Uh, the, the office number here for the Lancaster office is 402-441-7180. Very good. All right, Sarah, will you take care? We will chat sometime here in the near future. Hopefully we'll collaborate on some fun tree talk again. I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, So uh, you take care. All right. Thanks for having me, Bob. It was a lot of fun. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Sarah Browning, Extension Educator with Lancaster County. Good stuff, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. And caller, I know you tried to call in. I, I messed up. I I hit a button I wasn't supposed to hit, and that uh, that cuts you off, so I apologize for that. All right, uh, join me next week right here for another rendition of How's It Growing. You have a great week. I will see you next week. Adios.